everyone. Welcome to Cancer Casually. I'm your host, Lindsay DeLong, and I'm the managing editor of The Fullest. I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 33 when my boyfriend found a lump and made me go get it checked out. A year and a half later, I'm now cured, healthy, and can kind of talk about it all without crying. Each week, I interview inspiring survivors who have come out on the other side of cancer or who are still battling it. We'll talk about our lives before, during, and after cancer and share what we've learned so that our listeners can look at their own lives through a new perspective, whatever that may be. Here's not just how to live with cancer, but how to be there for someone and how to cope as a co-survivor because it's not just a disease that affects you, it affects everyone around you. With this podcast, we hope to inspire others to grasp life no matter what comes at you and always live it to the fullest. In today's world, more women are getting diagnosed with breast cancer than ever before. Breast cancer affects one in eight women, both young and old. Today on the show, I'm here with a very special guest who sees these statistics every single day. Dr. Christy Funk is a Beverly Hills breast cancer surgeon whose patients have included Angelina Jolie and Cheryl Crow, amongst hundreds of others, both famous and not. She is the founder of the Pink Lotus Breast Center and the author of the book, Breasts, The Owner's Manual, which, according to me, should be required reading to everyone who has or who has ever had breasts. Hi, thanks Hi. for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, I've had a couple guests now who have referenced you, so it was just a natural fit that oh. I'm so excited. You've done media for everyone. I was like, <laughs> you're all over the place. Oh, Good well. morning, America, Rachel Ray. I'm hitting it all again next week, actually. To, really? Yes, we're going to ring in the BCAM, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, on October 1st on Good Morning America. And then I've got Megan Kelly back to back Tuesday and Wednesday with, on Wednesday, I think it is, with Paige Moore. Someone oh who's gosh. been here, yes. You guys will be together? We'll be together. It? I'm oh. sort of the expert, and they're doing a panel of patients who have sort of made lemonade from lemons, so to speak. And, yeah. of course, her with her breasties and all yes. that. So that's amazing. And I'm doing Rachel Ray, and I have this very distinct honor. I'm just floored that I was even invited. Um, Farm Sanctuary has their annual gala on the Hudson in New York on Thursday night. And I'm one of three honorees. They're gifting me with the Gift of Life Award, which is just the organization, if you've never heard of it, is phenomenal. It's a nonprofit, been around for over 30 years, saving farm animals from slaughter. And they just have a remarkable, compassionate program taking injured animals there was one that the kids and I and Andy went out they've got a farm next to Magic Mountain here in LA and so we went there and we just met the most gentle souls and yet you know they were like genetically modified and fed a ton of food so they're massive like I never thought of a pig I mean I think of Wilbur from Charlotte's Web (laughs) these pigs were like 300 pounds all of them I mean they're just huge beasts and I mean the Steer were 2,000 pounds, six foot four. I mean, just enormous creatures, but gentle. And anyway, so I'm very excited about Farm Sanctuary's award and their gala and bringing more awareness to the good work they're doing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So tell me how um, you came to focus on breast cancer specifically. Did you have experience, personal experience with the disease or? I, that actually, I did not have any um close relatives with breast cancer. It was more of an assignment given to me by the main surgeon um, at Cedars-Sinai. At the time, I had just finished my surgery residency in Seattle, and I knew that the future of surgery would be minimally invasive. Laparoscopy was just starting where you, you know, operate through tiny incisions, long instruments, watching a TV monitor, right? You've got the camera in there. Well, it was so new that when I was a resident, the attendings, the guys who were the main surgeons would elbow you out of the way because they needed to learn. They're like, you know, I got, I'm not teaching you anything. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. So I kind of missed the boat on that. I I only was trained in open surgery with big incisions. And I'm thinking I need to learn this. So I got a fellowship. There were very few at the time. So it was a big honor. I got into the minimally invasive surgery fellowship at Cedar sinai And the man who ran that fellowship 
coincidentally, was director of their brand new breast center. And this breast center was run by five men over 50. They clearly needed some estrogen in the space. (laughs) And they had scoured the country. I don't know how they hadn't found who they were looking for, but he honed in on me. He's like, you know, I forgot to ask you what you want to do with your life. And this is so typical male surgeon, but I love him to pieces. So he's forgiven. And I'm actually grateful. But he said, "Um, I forgot to ask you. uh, So... Let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to do a breast cancer fellowship and run the breast center. Wow. <laughs> so he basically assigned me my future. And while it did take me a few weeks to come to grips with leaving the world of true general surgery and what I consider more difficult and challenging cases in terms of, you know, taking stomachs and colons out and trading it for breast surgery, which to a general surgeon is maybe considered easy, mm-hmm. um, I had to get over that pride, you know, of, of, wow, I just trained so hard for all these years. And now if I had known I'm quote unquote, just doing breast surgery, what I quickly learned though, is once God kind of slapped that pride out of me and I accepted the, the assignment, I, man, I know that there's no woman that I see that thinks it's just oh, breast yeah. surgery. No. It's so rewarding. Yeah. I'm so happy. I leap out of bed every morning and just run to work excited oh, to face the day. Great. How many years have you been doing this now? Since I finished the breast fellowship, it's been 17 years. Oh my gosh. So you were really, really, or you still are very young, but you were, when you got this fellowship, you were in your early 30s? 32. Mm-hmm. 32. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Your career has been so amazing to uh, read about. Oh, this is- thank you. Well, it's been very laser focused on breasts and breast surgery and on improving the the knowledge base mm-hmm. of, of women and frankly of doctors too, to understand that there are a ton of risk reducing behaviors and strategies that can lessen the prevalence of this disease And or if people are diagnosed, there are a number of weapons at their disposal to weather the storm with as much success as possible. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that I read um, that you said was something like a statistic 89% of breast cancers are not hereditary. Close. So only 5 to 10% of all breast cancers are coming from an inherited genetic mutation mm-hmm. like BRCA or mm-hmm. CHECK2, which on the flip side of that stat means 90 to 95% are oh, not wow. from mutations. Yeah. Now, the stat I think you're remembering is that 87% of all women with breast cancer do not have a single first degree relative with breast cancer. Wow. So you know, one of the most fascinating studies comes from identical twins. So if you think of identical twins, right, they have 100% the same DNA. Mm-hmm. And if the breast cancer cards were all up to genetic fate, when one twin gets breast cancer, it should just be a fate accompli that the other one's going to get it in the next 10 seconds or so, right? Yeah. 20% chance, which is the exact same thing as between me and my sister who are 12 years apart. So mm-hmm. it's not all in the genetics. When it is, it's obviously a very serious um, predisposition to getting cancer if you hold one of these mutations yeah. in your DNA. but. For the vast majority, there is much more to this cancer puzzle that is under our control than we've been previously led to believe. Yeah, that was so surprising to me to hear that statistic because I don't have anyone in my family that has it. And I thought I was like a rarity. And so when I heard that, I was like, okay, so what is it? What do you think is it that is making so many people like young people, old people like What is it? Why is everyone getting breast cancer these days? Well, I think that we've got two extremes on either side of a bell curve, and you're at one extreme, and that is where we don't have a satisfactory explanation. On one end, we've got the genetic mutations that put people at astronomically high risk, and at Mm -hmm. the other end, we have women who, quote-unquote, do everything right, and they still get breast cancer, and they're so young, like they haven't lived badly long enough (laughs) for things to catch up with them. So it really does just feel like insane unfairness and and bad luck. And that may be exactly what it is. There are inexplicable occurrences in life. But the huge 80% middle of that bell curve, that is where I am convinced that diet and nutrition and alcohol, exercise, obesity, hormone replacement therapy, emotional stress, and environmental toxicities all combine and collide in different ways inside an individual Mm -hmm. 
to create illness. And for some, that illness might be heart disease and for others, it might be breast cancer. Mm -hmm. But all of those things to a greater rather than lesser degree can be controlled. I mean, some, some of the environmental things are just ubiquitous, but there are some others that you can choose. And for sure, the biggest boulders on the scales of health and illness, the boulders that really come down hard are what you're eating, what you weigh, how much you're exercising, and if you drink alcohol. All of the other things matter. They matter a lot and they can tip the scales. But if you don't have the four boulders on the healthy side of that scale, the other things are like dropping pebbles down. Yeah. How much does alcohol play into that, would you say? When I got diagnosed, I mean, I'm a social drinker every once in a while. I have wine. And um, so when I got diagnosed, I was like, okay, I'm never going to drink alcohol again. I'm never going to have candy again. I'm going to eat completely healthy. And then I was reading and like talked to my doctor and they're like, oh, you could still like, that's not why you got it. But I want, like, I was happy to hear that you believe that that is the cause. Cause I mean, (laughs) I don't know if that explains your cancer. We can never be sure, but But let's talk alcohol because this is a, you know, ubiquitous across cultures that people love to, to drink. First of all, what is a drink? Well, in America, it's 14 grams of alcohol. It's 12 Mm -hmm. grams in Europe. And that 14 grams is a 12 ounce beer equals 1.5 ounces of hard liquor equals five ounces of wine. Yeah, I have way more than five ounces of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Just for reference to the listeners, there's 25 ounces in a bottle. So (laughs) they think there's five glasses per bottle. Um, So, okay, get that little poison in your mind, pick it out. And here we go. A drink a day increases breast cancer by 10%. Two drinks a day, 30%. Three drinks a day, 40%. And you can add a percent, 10% for every drink thereafter and probably call your doctor Mm. (laughs) if we're working on five or more. Yeah. Um, However, there's a little, there are a couple things to acknowledge about alcohol. Now, not every study on heart health has shown that a drink a day keeps heart attacks away. But we must realize we are 26 times more likely to have heart disease and seven times more likely to die from a heart attack than we are from breast cancer. So for the fair number of studies that show that a drink a day does keep heart attacks away, even the American Cancer Society says women can have a drink a day and men can have two a day. And the reason why alcohol can contribute to cancers is largely from these mechanisms. It increases estrogen levels and estrogen feeds and fuels 80% of all breast cancers. So that's not ideal. It also impairs immune function. But one of the main reasons why alcohol leads to breast cancer is it inactivates an enzyme called MTHFR that is converting folic acid that you're getting from your leafy greens and such into its active form, methylfolate. Methylfolate runs around and fixes DNA when it goes awry. But if you drink every day and you keep inactivating that enzyme, you're not building up enough methylfolate to fix your DNA. Mm -hmm. So while I do think you could not drink at all or not drink so much, there are many people who do enjoy that drink a day for the heart health reasons mm-hmm. and social benefits. And we can talk about blue zones around the world where there are the more, more centenarians than anywhere else on the planet. And they generally have a drink or two a day. It's generally wine. Um, but anyway, the point is at um, pinklotus.com, we have a store called Elements. And in that store, we have a specific supplement engineered for drinkers. And what it has in it is methylfolate. So you immediately consume the active form since your enzyme doesn't work. Along with B6 and B12, and those three things in your body become glutathione, which is the most powerful antioxidant that can course through your veins. Oh, wow. And it has a bunch of botanicals that help support liver function and protects liver cells as they detoxify alcohol. So it's called Cosmo Companion. <laughs> and is that something you created? or? Well, I have a nutraceutical guru. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Ken Israel, and uh, he helped formulate it mm-hmm. uh, because I 
I had some the main basics down, but the botanicals are beyond my area of expertise. Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's our main yeah. guy. Who's and you take that before you are going to drink, or to anytime you take it, just in the morning, one oh, a day. Mor- doesn't yeah, okay. it go? Ha- doesn't have to go hand in hand. You don't swig it down with your shot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, and then what about sugar? Uh, I know cancer feeds off sugar. I still have. I still eat sugar. Well, like, I love this question. Okay, so. Still eating sugar, uh, refined sugar, like that you find in cake and cookie and ice yeah. cream and pie. Right. Yeah. Candy. Here, oh, yeah, we like candy. I'm what is bad. your go-to candy? I need to stop. <laughs> What's your go-to? Jelly bellies. Oh, yeah. All those flavors. I know. It's tempting. So here's the thing about sugar that's quite interesting. All cells primarily use glucose, i.e. sugar, for their fuel, particularly your brain. So if you successfully starved cancer of sugar, you would be dead. So there's the fact that can't, that idea is really simply coming from the fact that cancer is faster moving than the majority of cells in your body. And therefore it uses sugar faster. That's the basis of a PET scan looking for a metastatic spread. Mm -hmm. It's a radioactive sugar molecule that's injected into your veins and wherever it pools, you know, you're having more sugar use and that's often suggestive of a cancer focus, right? But the real reason to limit jelly bellies <laughs> is that there's no nutritional value yeah. in refined sugar like that. Your sugar should be coming from intact whole foods, from an apple and not apple juice. We want the whole thing, the proanthocyanidins, which are the amazing anti-cancer phytochemicals existing within these whole foods. You don't want to juice them out and throw the pulp into the recycle. This Mm -hmm. is stuff that needs to be in your body with the fibers and the sugars. These sugars, when consumed, do not spike your blood sugar ever. They've done many studies where they just measure blood levels minute to minute. And you don't get a spike in sugar, so you don't get a spike in insulin. Insulin, of course, is that hormone that's driving sugar into storage mode, right? So into your fat cells and into your muscles as glycogen. And when sugar from a jelly belly comes into your system, it's just spikes up, insulin spikes up. And this chronic state leads to what you probably have heard of as insulin resistance. Your cells are just like enough already with the insulin. I can't hear you. But there's a false notion out there that diabetes, because now we're thinking about sugar and insulin diabetes, comes from sugar um, consumption. Totally wrong. It comes from saturated fat consumption. So you've got these little um, receptors on like your muscle cells, right? And when it's for insulin and when insulin hits this receptor, it opens up the gate to allow sugar, glucose from the bloodstream to come into the muscle to get stored as glycogen. But these receptors for insulin literally get plugged up with excess saturated fat. So when you eat a bunch of fat, now insulin can't get in. It's just blocked by Mm -hmm. fat. So insulin is like, hey, open the gate, open the gate, but it can't communicate that. So now your blood sugar is still flying around in the blood. And then your brain is like, whoa, what's up with all the, the sugar in the blood? Let's send out more insulin pancreas. So now you're in this hyperinsulinemia state with high levels of sugar running around, and that's diabetes. You lose the consumption of constant saturated fat and you lose weight and the receptor, boop, the little fat molecule pops out. All of a sudden insulin works again. Type two diabetes is entirely reversible by eating a whole food plant-based diet. Oh, People think of it as a chronic disease and they do not need to have amputations and blindness and premature death from heart attacks if they would just learn that that is the main mechanism for diabetes and the way to reverse it is to stop consuming the saturated fat we get from animals, from meat, and from dairy, from cheese and butter and milk. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. I, 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 I say this every time, but I need to change my diet. <laughs> Can we talk about your diet? I love talking about food. <laughs> I do drink a lot of green tea and I, I know that you are a fan of that. Big fan. EGCG. That's the amazing chemical in green tea that literally seeks out and destroys cancer cells. Okay. It is. So I'm doing that right. So for 
those who don't realize it, food holds tremendous power within it. Power, if it's a Big Mac and fries, to help feed and fuel cancer cells and atherosclerotic plaques inside heart arteries and brain arteries, leading to heart attacks and strokes and Alzheimer's and dementia. Or the power of phytochemicals, plant-based chemicals that only come from eating plants and particularly whole food plants. So we're talking broccoli and kale and tomatoes and soy. We can talk about soy, very healthful food. Oh, yeah, we have to talk about that. Okay, because this is a buster, right? Okay, totally. So these foods, when you chomp them, mix them with your saliva and swallow them down, become phytochemicals in your bloodstream doing things that cancer hates, lowering estrogen levels, lowering growth hormones, in particular, a big bad actor called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one, angiogenesis. This is the ability of a cancer to bring new blood flow to itself. So it gets the nutrients it needs to grow and it just created its exit strategy out through the blood into the brain or the bone or the liver. Mm -hmm. Angio meaning blood vessel genesis creation. So these foods inhibit, stop angiogenesis and they decrease inflammation and they help improve your immune system by limiting free radicals. So your immune system can now do its other job, which is ridding yourself of little rogue cancer cells. Food does this. And every time we lift fork to mouth, We are empowering ourselves or we're shackling them every time, depending on what it is that you are eating. When I wrote Breasts, the Owner's Manual, I did not eat this way. Really? I largely ate like Mediterranean diet style. Mm -hmm. So tons of lean meats, particularly fish, but chicken and turkey. And I had fruits and vegetables and I shunned like any uh, girl who was a teen in the 80s for we absolutely shunned and probably all still do these carbs, bread, pasta, rice, and potatoes. Those four. Oh, I thought if I just looked at them, I would get fat. (laughs) So that is how I ate. I was really low on the grains and really high on the, the lean meats. Okay. Went into the science because in my book, every single fact I say is backed by science. I have 80 pages of over 1200 scientific articles as references because I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be misleading. I feel like, you know, as a authority of what can help reduce breast cancer and increase our longevity, I I can't be wrong. So I went in to prove that the way that I ate was correct because of course it was. And whoa, I was so overwhelmed and absolutely convinced that the cellular response to consuming animal protein of any kind and animal fat of any kind. So we're talking chicken and turkey and my beloved salmon filet on top of almost every salad I ate. And I had sushi three times a week. I'm sure I was radioactive, did not care. (laughs) I was like, no, not the, not all this meat, this This response is everything opposite of the plants. It increases estrogen levels, increases growth hormone, especially IGF-1, increases angiogenesis, increases inflammation, shackles my immune system so that free radicals run rampant throughout my body. What? Okay, okay, I'm all right with it. I haven't had red meat since I was 10, but don't take my cheese away, right? Like, (laughs) we're talking, I have a drawer in, had a drawer in my kitchen. It had a sign, like, keep out. Mommies, like you open that drawer, we have five-year-age Gouda, Manchego, Brie. Yeah, Yeah, this Uh was my therapy drawer and no one could touch it. But geez, it turns out. Oh, all the same cascade of badness happens because Uh it is animal protein and animal fat. And get this, it takes 10 pounds of milk to make one pound of cheese. So think about that. If that all gets concentrated and distilled down, that is why cheese becomes our most caloric source in like per bite. It is packed with calories, with saturated fat, 75% saturated fat, most cheeses. Salt, because that's how you stop the fermentation process. So it's this salty, little chewy, gooey thing of goodness, you would think, because it's so delicious. And apparently, I know Americans think so, because that's the number one source of where they get their saturated fat. When you look at the list, number one, cheese. Number two, 
pizza. Okay, more cheese. <laughs> number three is cookies and cakes and pies um, and so on. But number five is chicken. Surprisingly, wow. even a lean chicken breast. Okay, skinless, boneless chicken breast, 19% saturated fat, which means when you take a bite, 20% of that bite is just pure badness when it comes to the fat. Wow, that's my healthy food. <laughs> it used it's most Americans. In fact, the chicken consumption continues to go up and up as people try to limit their beef. Although fifty eight percent of the meat we eat in America is still beef. Um, eating meat has a number of negative aspects beyond the cascade of inflammation. You're consuming carcinogens every time you eat meat because unless you're having sashimi or beef tartare, uncooked meat. And by the way, risking life-threatening bacterial contamination and diarrhea mm-hmm. um, because our food, uh, I, we, we won't talk about that. What we <laughs> will talk about is the cooking. So when you cook meat, you immediately, whether you're grilling it for a few minutes or slow cooking it, you are forming two carcinogens, heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons on the surface of that otherwise deliciously grilled, smoked, barbecued meat. Even if you slow cook it in the oven, you're making it. It's the mixture of the creatine and meat with heat. This does not happen to a veggie burger or the char on a on broccoli. I don't think it has any nutritional value, but it's not a the carcinogen the way the char is on a piece of meat. So you're eating these carcinogens. And then of course the nitrosamines and nitrosamines, the nitrates in all of our processed meat, like there's no place on your plate for sausage, hot dog, bacons, or deli slices. Mm. I did not know this. Wow. When I wrote my book, I, the very day that I was reading that the IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer in July, 2015, met in Lyon, France, 22 researchers from 10 countries read 800 epidemiologic studies to answer two questions. Does red meat cause cancer? Does processed meat cause cancer? And they came out of that room after, I'm sure they had breaks and took a couple weeks over it, but they came out of the room and they said, all processed meat is absolutely carcinogenic to humans mm. on the same list with the same class 1A level of evidence as tobacco, asbestos, and plutonium. Wow. Even organic. Even organic. Oh. Yes. And that very day I had literally rolled up turkey breast slices yeah. around a mozzarella stick and sent my kids to school <laughs> with lunch. Yes. So I will tell you the short of that is that after really delving into all of the literature, there was no way around it. One day, just we turned on a dime. My three sons, my husband, Andy, and I, I cleared out the entire fridge with four and a half bags filled to the brim of animal-based products. I didn't realize how much every one of my meals had some aspect of animal protein or fat in it. I brought the bags over to my parents who live a mile away, and I was like, here, it's too late for you. <laughs> They'd be so mad if they knew I'd thrown it all away. So I had to give it to them. But yes, we became 100% vegan. Oh, okay. Yeah, when I first got diagnosed, I cleaned my fridge out too and threw everything bad away. But then I went back to my old ways. Well, habit patterns are frequently hard to break, but you have to believe why you had cleaned out your fridge in that way in the mm-hmm. first place, right? If you, I, I am a scientist by nature, so this is very convincing. I can't undo what I now know. It's as if you find out that this person you loved has been like sleeping with prostitutes for 10 years straight. You're like, what? I, I get it. I used to love you, Salmon. But now that I know what you are doing to me, yeah. you are disgusting and I never want to see you again. Yeah. And that's how I feel about these foods. It is not hard. I do not miss them. I get, the, just like the analogy, I get the love I used to have, but now there is none. Yeah. I think you just got to do it. I stopped drinking alcohol like a month and a half ago. I don't miss it at all. I Mm. feel great, but I need to do that with cheese and Jolly Bellies next. (laughs) Okay. I'm inspired. (laughs) So um, what do you, oh wait, we were going to talk about soy. Oh, we should. Because it's so important to bust this myth. Okay, guys. Soy in all of its healthful forms. So fermented soy is miso, tempeh natto, which is pretty hardcore, and soy sauce or tamari, and then all of your other soy, soy milk, always non-GMO organic. 
I we generally have silk soy milk in the house because they're always non-GMO. And we use the organic unsweetened. So you might have to start with sweetened if you just get off <laughs> okay. the jelly belly addiction. <laughs> yeah. um, and then uh, tofu, edamame, soybeans. These are all extremely healthy. They are not only safe for women to take, they are risk reducing to take. So here's the data. Basically, by the way, the reason why there's conflict out there is largely because of Petri dishes and animal studies. Sometimes the animal studies help us decipher what's healthy and helpful and, and what chemo works, et cetera, in humans. Sometimes humans do a 180 and we just aren't fuzzy little mice or rats. And sometimes it doesn't work the same. <laughs> and that's the story with soy. But even back, there were 40,000 studies done between in the 1980s to the current day, just looking at soy. Yeah. Articles published, I should say, not per se studies, but there are 40,000 articles on soy. So there's some controversy there, but if you look into the controversy, not one study ever reported out in humans and soy mm. has a conflict. It's always healthy to the tune of decreasing breast cancer by about 60% wow. in those who consume soy regularly, particularly when they do so in youth and as adolescents. But there's still health benefit to continuing that consumption. But when you're, so soy it up, if you've got teenage girls at home, the drop of 60% has been shown in a study that follows 73,000 people for decades. So this is not a small number. Now we found out, okay, soy... The reason why it's so beneficial, it contains something called isoflavones, which is a category of phyto plant, phytoestrogens. Whoa, there's that bad word again, estrogen, right? So even I, as a breast cancer surgeon, for 17 years or 16, before I wrote the book and did my research, I went into the research to tell people to stay away from soy mm -hmm. because that's what I told all my breast cancer patients. Yeah. I'm like, phytoestrogens, we don't know what they're doing in your body. They could be feeding and fueling the cancer. Just say, what do you think? A receptor smart? Okay. <laughs> turns out the receptor is not necessarily has a brain, but has two types. There's alpha and there's beta. And this is new news in the last decade. Well, man, some people knew about the beta receptors, truth be told, like 25 years ago. But it became more mainstream to understand that there's two receptors, alpha and beta. Alpha is attached to your cancer cells. Alpha is preferentially inhabited by your own body's estrogen. And when it gets filled, it sends a signal to the cancer to multiply and divide. Beta, on the other hand, is preferentially hit with 1600% more affinity by the isoflavones in soy, like genistein. And when beta is inhabited by soy, it does two incredible things. Number one, it shuts alpha down. It acts like that drug tamoxifen. It goes over there and blocks it and actually inactivates it. And it goes out into the peripheral fat cells and shuts down an enzyme there called aromatase, which is converting testosterone and other adrenal gland hormones, steroids into estrogen. That's why postmenopausal ladies, they're like, I don't have any estrogen. My ovaries quit years ago. Yeah. They do. They're making it in their adipose, their fat cells. And that's why they take not tamoxifen usually, but an aromatase inhibitor, oh, right? Okay, that's yeah. their anti-estrogen because uh -huh. we have to stop their body from making the switch from testosterone over. Yeah. So soy goes out and blocks that enzyme. So much so there was a study done in some Texas girls. I guess they don't drink too much soy milk in Texas. <laughs> so they found these, uh, there were 50 young women and they drew their estrogen levels. They went away for one month and did one dietary change only. And that was to drink three cups of soy milk a day. They came back and they drew their blood for many months straight. And what they found, depending on where they were in their menstrual cycles, because obviously your estrogen naturally fluctuates, 100% of the subjects had between 30 and 80% less estrogen flying around. And that change lasted for three months after stopping the soy wow. milk. Soy so that milk. proved, yeah. And then in the cancer patients, there uh -huh. are a number of studies now that show that there is about a 60% decrease in recurrence mm. in breast cancer patients, even on tamoxifen or the CIRMs who take, who consume soy versus those who don't. And the numbers go from 16% in the lowest study up to 29% decrease in death from breast cancer for soy consumers, just from eating soy. This is so crazy because that's the one thing I was sure of is you stay away from soy. 
Yes, I'm, I know. I'm that's sorry. wrong. <laughs> blowing your mind it right now. Blowing my mind. <laughs> but that's great to know. I'm so glad to know that I need to start drinking soy milk. I have a wonderful antioxidant um, smoothie recipe on Ooh. page 69 in my book. And the base of it mm-hmm. is soy milk because of its powers. I mean, very few people, it turns out one in 2000, 0.05% of people have a true soy milk allergy. You're way more likely to be allergic to milk or peanuts. So most people do not have an allergy to soy and soy milk is a really healthy, easy way to get your servings in. Yeah. Okay. Um, So you mentioned tamoxifen and I have been taking tamoxifen for a year and a half now. So uh, can I do anything like change my diet and not take tamoxifen or am I stuck with tamoxifen? (laughs) You can't really answer that. Uh, You know what? I think that if you can weather the side effects for at least the five years, you know, you got another three and a half to go. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That it that the benefits, whatever your recurrence risk is, in it, it's going to get cut in half. I okay, mean, it's amazing, right? If you think about that, because recurrence, we're talking metastatic stage four recurrence. Yes. So whatever your risk for that is, tamoxifen is cutting it in half. And even if that's just a four percent getting cut to two percent, it's such a big deal. Yeah. On average, people will weather the storm of chemotherapy for a 10% benefit, some uh-huh. for even far less yeah. and some more. But on average, it's about a 10% benefit, meaning a 10% drop in metastatic recurrence. And I'm telling you, tamoxifen's giving you a 50% drop. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think you should try. But in addition to your tamoxifen, I've got a couple of things to say. One is there's a whole world of anti-estrogenic eating that I do have some people whose benefit for the anti-estrogens isn't that high or they've got a problem. Like you can't take tamoxifen if you've had a DVT, a blood clot, right? They mm-hmm. can't. So if, if you have someone who can't take it, I really arm them with this list of anti-estrogenic foods. You've already learned that soy, if you think about those numbers, soy dropped recurrence by 60% and death by 29%. That's actually smack identical to the tamoxifen study Mm. in reduction and in reduction in death. So that's pretty powerful data, the correlation in those numbers. In addition, there's cruciferous vegetables, you know, like broccoli, cauliflower, kale, arugula. Um, They are very anti-estrogenic. One of the biggies is mushrooms. And of all the mushrooms, you'd think you'd have to get like fancy with portobello or something. Mm -mm, Yeah. Little white button. (laughs) And it's only 10 grams, which is about the size of your thumb. Wow. So the white button. I can muster that. Yep. Oh, and something else I learned that is not in my book because I learned it later is a garotene is a toxin on all mushrooms. You should never, ever eat a raw mushroom again. You're consuming a garotene. You only have to lightly cook it like in a, you know, steam it or yeah. put it in a um, stir fry for one minute and the garotene blows off. But just FYI. Oh, okay. Citrus is another big antiestrogen. If you're suffering from side effects... We have, we, the Pink Lotus Elements, have um, identified something called menopause miracle. Nine rat trials show it's not tumorigenic or anything. And then three randomized controlled trials in women. So, you know, against placebo, the gold standard, Uh shows that the vast majority, over 90% of women, have around a 60% drop in anything that was bothering them. Hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, thinning hair, dry, crepey skin, uh, mood swings, insomnia. Yeah. So it's achy just... bones. I don't want to have achy bones and I have them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. This helps. It helps in actually improved bone density Ooh. and it improved better HDL, lower LDL. So the cholesterol ratio went into the good direction. Um, it's just a three herb blend mm. and that's all it is. It's a one a day. And do people take that with the tamoxifen? Mm-hmm. Not, uh, not instead of the tamoxifen. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, You're still trying to get off that that's tamoxifen. Interesting. Yeah. So menopause miracle. It's truly saved the day for a lot of women hot wow. flushing their way to a divorce. Yeah. Okay, that's great to know. Um, another question I have about that is the five year mark. Why are is some people saying five years and some people say you have to be on it for ten years? Is that just double safe? No, there was a study that did show that there is in some women, and you can test for your um, benefit of the additional five years with mm-hmm. a test called breast cancer index. It's done on your actual tumor slides, which are always kept around for at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. So 
BCI or breast cancer index is looking at a number of genetic factors unique to your tumor and it predicts the metastatic, there's that scary word again, recurrence percent in the second, the five to 10 years. So if that number's high, tamoxifen's going to knock it down yeah. and you yeah. might be motivated to take it. But if it's yeah. already low, okay. if it's like a 1% chance, tamoxifen's not going to make that any lower. Okay. So you can find out. But the benefit overall was like a 3% benefit in survival. Again, as an absolute number to some women, they're like, bring it on. That's amazing. And others are like 3%. Really? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Cool. So what do you say to those who are scared to get checked? And I mean, like people aren't supposed to get mammograms till they're 40. Um, what do you say to people that are younger? Like I was diagnosed at 33 and I hadn't ever had a mammogram. Mm -hmm. So just self-checking. You know, I, the official word on the street is that self breast exams are not helpful. That's um, the official stance of like the American Cancer Society is mm -hmm. to not do them. I differ. I think the reason why most exams are not that helpful is that people kind of don't start checking themselves until their breasts are like confusing, confusing and lumpy and everything feels like cancer and they yeah. don't know what they're doing. But I believe that if girls in high school are taught how to do a self-breast exam, I'm not expecting them to have any cancer, mm -hmm. but I'm teaching them um, that breasts are lumpy, learn your lumps. This is how they are. If you ever notice something new, hopefully you never do, but maybe you'll be 33 years old yeah. and your fingers will have had an unconscious memory now of maybe 18 years of feeling these breasts yeah. on a monthly basis. And you'll notice something that's one centimeter as opposed to the average size that is detected by people in their own breasts is 2.2 centimeters. Ooh. The average size on a mammogram is 2.2 centimeters. So you can also make the conclusion that people are no better than the mammogram. So just let the mammogram do it. But mammograms, as we well know, have many shortcomings, including missing cancer, particularly in dense breasts. Yeah. So my advice is to begin doing self-breast exam. I've got a great video showing you how at easybreastexam.com. Mm -hmm. It's a video I made for the Hallmark Channel. And um, it shouldn't take very long. You know, it's like a three-minute exam. Yeah. And you do it one week after your period starts because that's when your breasts are the least lumpy and tender and confusing. Uh -huh. Or if you don't menstruate, then just do it the first of the month. So you check it off your calendar. You're done. Yeah. Good to go for a month. Yeah. I it's just so good to make it a routine. So you keep doing it. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. You know, I have, I just, there's too many women that I've seen who felt their lump in the shower. Uh-huh. You know, there's. There's no reason to not look. You're with your breasts all day long. Yeah. <laughs> make time. Your, your doctor is. Yeah. And yeah, make some time. <laughs> and, and, you know, if your doctor sees you once or twice a year. Yeah. You, you should be responsible for your breasts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, you um, famously performed Angelina Jolie's uh, preventative double mastectomy. And like you said, you are... Uh, friends with Paige. And, yes. Yeah. So um, tell me about the uh, BRCA, the BRCA gene. Um, do, have you seen um, more people coming to you with that um, gene oh. since Angelina did it? Yeah. Since Angelina famously, you know, came forward with her um, New York op-ed about her decision, the testing rate has skyrocketed mm -hmm. and therefore the number of positive tests has also increased. And I've certainly um, seen a number of those people, but they're obviously all over the country and world. So I don't see all of them, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was just a tremendous public service really to enlighten people about the BRCA gene and what it is. Every, every one of us has a BRCA gene. It's supposed to function. It mm -hmm. runs around and it fixes DNA when it goes awry or it throws it out if it's too broken to fix. So it prevents DNA mutations from propagating into a mass that then eventually leaves its initiating place in the breast, say, and going to another organ. The other at-risk organs with BRCA1 are ovaries and prostates. With BRCA2, you also have ovary and prostate, but also melanoma and pancreatic cancers. Um, there's 
an insignificant, like they, they don't say for sure, but there's possibly an, a bump in colon and gastric, but that hasn't been consistently seen enough to, to say so. So uh, all this to say, when your BRCA is mutated, it's no longer performing that housekeeping function. And when a, say, breast cell becomes cancerous, your body's a little helpless at fixing that mutation. Mm-hmm. Well, through that avenue of BRCA, but it's a main avenue. Yeah. It's not entirely helpless. We've got other housekeeping functions. Our immune system, for example, is <laughs> supposed to recognize such an intruder and tag it for destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you are at your center. I mean, you're in Beverly Hills. You're getting a lot of um, probably celebrities, but you also treat normal people. All the time. Non-celebrities. Right? Yes. yes. They also have breasts. <laughs> yes. And I treat them. I do. We take every insurance under the sun that we can, mm-hmm. including Medicare. And I've always been quite proud of that because it's uh, it hasn't been easy being in um, in private practice. I was one of the directors of the Cedar sinai Breast Center for seven years after I finished my fellowship. And then coming up on 10 years ago, Andy and I had this amazing vision to create a freestanding breast center where we just did it better. You know, like we wanted to provide care that combines state-of-the-art technology with holistic, compassionate care and brought in some other disciplines like nutrition and acupuncture and do it all under this um, more comfy, cozy kind of house-like environment, you know, instead of the sterile walls of a hospital. So in birthing this dream, uh, (laughs) we unfortunately opened doors at the absolute rock bottom nadir of the recession on March 23rd, 09. Like you just spread out that Dow Jones graph and (laughs) it is the absolute bing. And then it started to go the other way right on that day. Oh my gosh. So that was, um, that's like me and Bitcoin FYI. (laughs) (laughs) It was like December 17, 2017. I know the day. Look it up. (laughs) I'm going to, that's interesting. Um, yes. So, Holy moly, we opened doors and the other surgeons who said they were coming with me, gone. Oh, I was stuck holding this eight year lease in the heart of Beverly Hills. Like we're talking like $45,000 a month just in rent. Oh my gosh. Just in rent. We couldn't (laughs) afford anything. Like overnight we lost credit cards. No banks were lending. Like it was just like, I remember it was March, right? In May. We sold the first car I ever bought. I'd finally bought a new car. I mean, I had bought used cars. Um, And I'd only had it for like five months. I was like, oh, we had to sell it just to pay the rent. And, you know, that only got us through May. So I don't have like a lineup of cars. (laughs) It was crazy. We couldn't buy groceries and I didn't even lose weight. It was terrible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, and I was four months pregnant with triplets. Oh my gosh. This all happened at the all same, happened time. same time. So just a few months later, we were literally needing 900 diapers a month, a bigger space. Cause we lived in an apartment two au pairs. Cause I had to go right back to work. Yeah. Like on the home front and the work front, it was just money, money, money. And I didn't have any. <laughs> wow. So what did you do? You know, we have Andy and I, a tremendous faith in God. And as Christians, we had a very, strong sense that we were called to open the breast center. And I felt like, you know what? This is your problem, God. (laughs) I'm just going to wake up and be happy that I don't have, you know, my problem is money. Money can fix this. So um, money can't fix stage four cancer. Money can't fix kids that have big problems when they're born. And my three were born healthy and money can't fix a marriage that's just so messed up that the love can't come back. Like it's, I'm okay. I'm good. My marriage is good. My kids are good. My health is good. And you know, just don't, please don't, please don't take one of those things away. Too. <laughs> I don't know what I do, but you know, I had deep debt and that was it. So I just smiled all day Oh. Wow. and I did my best at what I was called to do, which was to be there for women, mm-hmm. whether or not they had breast cancer, I was there to help them through whatever they were navigating. And just one foot in front of the other. And then on a practical level, we borrowed at insane amounts, like 28% APR from loan sharks and oh. every friend and foe I ever had. I just, we just borrowed up the wazoo. We were millions oh in debt. Millions. It was, it was terrible. Wow. But, um, yeah, just eventually 
Well, ironically, we came out of it by 2014. We had just surfaced. We still had debt, but we weren't like drowning. Uh And I'd hired like three surgeons and we had our radiology center booming. So I had a radiologist and, you know, techs, mammotechs, ultrasound techs. It was like a real thriving center. Yeah. And then we found out that our billing company had defrauded us out of millions. Like, so we made all these decisions about hiring and actually opened an entirely new second center in Santa Monica. Uh Uh-huh. With money that I thought I had, because oh. the dashboard said I had, yeah, <laughs> but it was non-existent. Oh my god! So phew, we spiraled in a matter of weeks, worse than we ever were. Worse because now we had debt layered upon the debt because I couldn't, ma- I couldn't even pay the rent in the second space. Yeah, there, I mean, it just it became, it became worse than ever, and that's when. I was like, there are no more loan sharks to lo- that will loan to me. Like, we're yeah. just such a mess um, that uh, that's when I gave it all to God. I'm like, look, this is this one's really up to you now. I don't have any more lifelines. I'm just going to say if um, this fails, it's not because I didn't show up every day. Uh-huh. And by the grace of God, we got some money that we needed and um, we didn't get evicted and we didn't <laughs> go bankrupt. <laughs> the same place you have now no that's okay. our new place so i okay, made it okay. we made it through the eight years yeah so without mm-hmm. so that eight years ended in this new place we've been in for about a year and a half oh okay great and so you and you take um any or basically you, all ppos okay and medicare wow man i wish i knew about you oh <laughs> you're so smart <laughs> That's great. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to quickly talk about um, overdiagnosis. I, mm-hmm. I know that you talk about that sometimes. And that is something that I was um, uh, surprised about when I heard. So um, tell me about that. I mean, yes. So the, the idea of overdiagnosis is that we are finding cancers that are insignificant in terms of life and death. So when you find a cancer, what is the chance that this sucker is going to grow and grow and eventually go into your liver or brain or bone or uh-huh. lung and kind of shut that organ down? That's how women die from breast cancer. It's never from breast cancer in her breast or even in the lymph nodes in the armpit because those organs aren't vital to life. It's the other ones. So what cancer has the biological potential, the little devious mastermind at its core that plans to go AWOL, right? Yeah. We don't know. (laughs) I know. Thought I had a big answer for you. Um, We don't know with certainty. We're getting some better insight with the world of genomics. You probably had either Oncotype or Mammaprint, something like that run on your cancer that helped determine whether or not chemotherapy would be a benefit. And the reason why it does that is it's predicting the biological potential of that cancer to metastasize, to be a life threat. Okay. So back to overdiagnosis. We kind of pride ourselves on finding cancers at earlier stages and smaller sizes, but that can be a detriment. There is strong evidence that some DCIS disappears with time. So let's just pick DCIS as our example. So DCIS, for those who don't know, is a stage zero breast cancer. There are cancer cells, but by definition, they're stuck inside a milk duct. They cannot access lymphatics or bloodstream and spread. Mm -hmm. So people feel quite relieved when a DCIS is diagnosed because there's no chemo needed and usually probably no mastectomy needed. Yeah. Okay. We diagnose in America 60,000 DCIS a year. Two thirds will eventually invade that duct wall. Oh, I lie. One third will eventually invade that duct wall and become an invasive cancer. Even then, that doesn't mean it broke the wall, means it broke the wall inside your duct. It doesn't mean it's going to spread out into the body. Two-thirds stays put as DCIS forever. Okay, so by definition, 40,000 women every single year in the United States are overtreated for DCIS because it never would have done anything to them. Yeah, and so how can you make sure that you don't get prescribed chemo when you don't need it? Like, what can a patient do to... Well, so... When the example of DCIS, chemo isn't the question Mm -hmm. because you never give chemo for that. But sometimes this will lead to 
surgery and even bilateral mastectomies, it will lead to radiation and that has its collateral Mm -hmm. damage. It will lead to tamoxifen, which you know and love very well. (laughs) Yeah, my achy bones. (laughs) Exactly. So we've studied DCIS up the wazoo and back again in terms of like high grade, low grade, estrogen driven and not. You're under 50 years old or over 50. It's bigger than five centimeters or under two centimeters or on and on it goes. And we cannot figure it out because everything still lands on one-third invades, two-thirds does not. Mm. When you ask the question about how do we not over-treat with chemotherapy, this is a whole new world of exciting stuff because I mentioned those words oncotype and mammoprint. There are a couple of other assays um, coming into more frequent use, but those are the two biggies. These assays are like fluids that contain a number of markers that are either good for a cancer to express or bad. And depending on what your individual personal cancer has or doesn't have, it'll go into an algorithm and spit out the percent chance that your cancer wants to come back in a life-threatening place in the next 10 years. So if that number is high, chemo can make it lower. But if it's already low, chemo can't make the low number lower. Mm, Okay. So these studies are reversing what these assays reverse what we doctors would knee jerk and say, oh, you need chemo because what? Because you're only 33, because your tumor was this size or that grade. These reverse that opinion 30% of the time. Mm, Wow. 30% of the time we say you need chemo and then you do the study and you don't or vice versa. We're like, no, you're not going to need it. And boop, it turns out to be an aggressive little guy. Yeah. And you should do chemo. Her too positive. That's like always aggressive, right? Yes. It's always always aggressive um, and extremely responsive to our targeted therapies. So much so that get this, if you have a HER2 positive estrogen positive cancer with nine positive lymph nodes and you do the treatment, guess what stage you are? One. Really? The new staging system came out in January, 2018, incorporated that mammoprint and oncotype stuff and the HER2 positive tumors come out as stage one, even with nine positive nodes, because that's how dramatically well they do. Oh, you wow. have to do the treatment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and the treatment is more than just the Herceptin targeted drug. It's chemotherapy and then antiestrogens. But at least the silver lining is what you thought was stage three a second ago, like 2017 second ago, <laughs> is actually stage one because we're basing our new staging system on prognosis. That's what stage is supposed to mean. It's yeah. It's supposed to mean like, you know, how bad is it? How, what's the chance here that it's going to be okay? And when you are HER2 and estrogen positive, it, it's a pretty good story. Okay. I have a question about the myths um, that people believe about breast cancer. Um, the microwave cell phones. How, <laughs> I love uh, that. Myth. I'm scared of my microwave. Should I be scared of my microwave? <laughs> I, I microwave something and then I like wait 15 seconds before I even go back in the kitchen. That's so funny. And I duck out of the way and like slink down. Yeah, my dad me told me my head would explode. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> I grew up thinking that I could not watch my hot dog pop off in the side, which I used to love to do. I have good news for you though. <laughs> it turns out that the radio frequency, the um, is the radiation from microwaves and cell phones and power lines and infrared and your television and your radio, all of that is non-ionizing radiation. And as such, it just doesn't have the power to create breaks in your DNA. Okay. So you can tuck your cell phone in your bra for all I care. It's totally safe. That seems scary. (laughs) (laughs) But you can. And the ionizing radiation sources are things like medical x-rays. We're talking mammograms and PET CTs. Yeah, how bad are those? I'm scared of those too, but I have to get them all the time. Well, you should not get them all the time, actually. Every six months. You get a PET CT every six months? Oh, I get a mammogram. mammogram. Yeah, so here's the deal. Mammograms, there's, you know... Quite controversial as they deserve to be because there's pros and cons. Ultimately, I have no idea how we can like rocket through the air at 500 miles an hour in an upright position in an airplane. And yet we can't figure out how to look inside a breast and know what's there. But mammograms, what we've got right now, and until something becomes more um, readily usable and more reliable, you know, like an MRI is better, but it's not, you can't do that 
for millions of women as a screener. Yeah. It's, it's too labor intensive. It's an IV injection. It's a, you know, right yeah. now 45 minutes and a clanging tube. Like that's just not gonna, it's not how you screen the masses. If you take 10,000 women and do a mammogram between 40 and 75 years old every year, you will cause 8.6 cancers from radiation exposure. So yes, the ionizing radiation from mammography does cause breast cancer. However, you will find 100 times that number of cancers. You'll find 860 in the same time that you yeah. cause 8.6. Yeah. So, so it's as a numbers it. game, it's yeah. worth it mm. to me. Yes. That's not necessarily the conclusion of every woman. Yeah. And I have plenty of women who decline mammography, and we do screening ultrasound because that's just harmless sound waves. Yeah. Is ultrasound as good as mammogram? No. But it's different. It looks at the breast tissue differently. The combination of mammography and ultrasound is better than either alone. Both mammograms and ultrasound are going to miss, like, depends how dense your breasts are. Yeah. So when you have really fatty breasts, the miss rate is like 13% you miss cancers. But when you're super dense, the high end, we graded A through D, D is 75 to 100% of the tissue just looks like a white splotchy snowstorm on mammography. Those breasts will miss 40 to 50% of cancers when they're there. Hmm. But thankfully, those are the extremes. The A's and the D's each have about 10% of the population. So 80% of the population is B and C. I highly recommend getting 3D mammography if you're yeah. a C or D. Yeah. And if you have elevated risk on top of just being a woman and getting older, add screening ultrasound when you're a C or a D and consider MRI. Yeah, I have to get an MRI. Uh, I had a, a, um, a mammogram and ultrasound last week. And now, and now they want an MRI? Oh, hopefully they're just okay. seeing scar tissue or something from everything you've been through. MRIs are um, fairly accurate. Like if something's there, it'll know it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've been doing this for 17 years. What has, uh, I mean, I know it's gotten so much better in the last 10 years. Um, what have you seen that has made breast cancer so much more survivable? Well, it's a combination of earlier detection and more targeted treatment and more likely the latter in the last 10 years. But the newest thing on the scene is 3D mammography, and that is particularly in dense-breasted women, finding 34% more breast cancer than the older 2D, and with 17% fewer callbacks, which is a tremendous benefit because those are a complete panic button when you get called back for something that's nothing that creates a lot of anxiety and extra radiation exposures and time off work, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a big advantage, and it's you know finding these cancers that it was missing before. The targeted drugs, Herceptin's been around now for, I think, 18 years or something, so that's not new in the last decade, but that was a real lifesaver for the yeah. whole HER2 world. Yeah. Immunotherapy is the most promising uh, new kid on the block, far and away, especially in metastatic triple negative patients. We now have our very first and only drug combo that has been proven to slow down the progression of stage four metastatic triple negative disease. Wow. And when did that come about? That uh, press release just came out in July. Oh my gosh. And so the, brand new. Brand That's new. great. The data is coming out at a conference in Munich, um, October 14th, mid, mid month. Yeah. Um, so I don't even know the actual numbers, but the press release, you know, can't lie. And so uh, they're saying it's really extending yeah. life, which is phenomenal. The drug is called T-centric and the, it's given with another drug that's a chemotherapy called abraxane, um, which is a t one of the taxols. So yes, in combination. So immunotherapy, there's different types of how they work, but in essence, um, your own, it, there's a protein when it comes to this particular drug, there's a protein that when present makes the cancer cell like really, really hard for your immune system to see. And the protein can exist on your own immune cells so that it's kind of got a blindfold on it. And so the combo here with T-centric and Abraxane is taking off the blindfold of your own immune system and taking off the thing that's hiding the cancer. So you've got a double whammy. Now all of a sudden your immune system wakes up and the cancer suddenly got like this little white flag raised, like I'm over here, come kill me. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that makes me so happy for triple negative people. I feel like I have all these friends from chemo and I just like, I'm so happy that like, man, yes. <laughs> we got to end the podcast soon because I'm getting all emotional, but Aww. it's great to talk to you and it's great to learn all this new stuff that I'm learning. And I just think that like, I'm just so thankful for like doctors like you who have that create cures because this is just, it's so scary. (laughs) It's so scary. Um, And I'm just so thankful that Herceptin was created. And now I'm just so thankful that you told me about (laughs) the triple negative, Mm -hmm. Um, not cure. You can't call it a cure, but like something that's really going to help them. Absolutely. I'm just, it's nice to talk to a doctor. <laughs> I, I interview a lot on the podcast, other survivors, and it's so, um, so good to talk to people that have went through it as well. But it's also really nice talking to someone like yourself that has saved so many lives. Oh, well, so. it's my privilege and honor to come alongside women when they invite me on their journey. So yeah. thank you for letting me talk with you today. And well, I wish you the best with your journey. It's really just the new path of life. You've made such a beautiful podcast out of, you know, what you've experienced led you to help others dispensing this important information and making women feel like they're not alone in this journey. Yeah. 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 I, I think that it really helps to talk about it. So I think I need to talk about it more, obviously, because I like getting emotional every time. But I think uh, I hope that it's helpful to listen to uh, people talk about it too. For the I listeners. would encourage also any of your listeners on the pinklotus.com website, mm-hmm. or you can just Google breast buddies and it will come up. So what we've created a online community of survivors so that a newly diagnosed woman can go on and say that she needs a buddy. And then someone who's been through the whole journey and it's all in the past, or at least the active treatments are done. um, She wants to be a buddy. So you put in, yeah. So we put in different parameters because I always say somebody who has like DCIS really shouldn't be getting advice from a stage three C, right? Like it's sunshine and rainbows talking to a snowstorm. And it just, the experiences are different. The, it doesn't, there's no help in that. There are, you know, 21 different subtypes of breast cancer. So the the computer, based on what we've done, you put in about 10 parameters. You can choose what you want to put in. But if you put in all 10, it matches people best by age and then stage of cancer and then what's proposed, like if you're going to have a lumpectomy or mastectomy or if you need chemo or not. And then it looks good that you have children or not because how are you going to tell little children or when do you tell? So it just pairs you. And then depending on also what you said, because if you want to meet in person, it has to be within a certain radius, but yeah. you could, this is worldwide. So you could just become an online buddy. Oh, but I've got to be a buddy. Please do. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. I'm excited about it because there is strong evidence that social support mm-hmm. leads to a more joyful journey. It doesn't always lead to a longer life, but it leads to, you know, a better thriving life yeah. when people have social support and not all of us were born into loving great families or lucky enough to have a circle of friends that understands and is there for you but we can choose new friends and we can make new friends and that's what breast buddies is for oh yeah that's amazing that is amazing and i'm so excited to check that out because that's so important and beneficial for so many people and I feel like we should end it on that before I start crying again. But that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for you. talking to me. Thanks, Lindsay. Cheers.